Our reading today comes from the sixth and seventh chapter of the book of Genesis. We'll start in chapter six, and you can follow along on page six of your orders of service. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both of them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubit, cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Then Lord, the Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. 
and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, my name's Paul White, uh, and I've been asked by Justin, who's preaching down at the Garrison Church today, uh, to preach from these two chapters in the book of Genesis, which Jeremy just read for us. Uh, so it'd be wonderful if you could keep uh, those passages in front of you, or even better, grab a pew Bible, open up to the beginning. Genesis sort of 6 through 9 is where we are. Uh, and we're continuing today our series on six rules for work and life, a really practical series uh, from the book of Genesis. But how about I pray for us before we begin? Father, make your presence felt amongst us this morning. Uh, teach us, convict our hearts, and change us through the power of your Holy Spirit as we celebrate the work of your Son in these words before us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yesterday afternoon, uh, Lauren uh, and my two sons, Joel and Ethan and I, were over at a friend's house, uh, helping them out in their garden. In the car, driving home, totally unprompted by me, uh, Joel began, our six-year-old Joel, began a very serious conversation about whether when God cleaned the world with water, Noah would have remembered the worms. Because he reasoned, well, the soil needs worms. Now, I didn't mind that at all, frankly, given that I'm preaching on um, this passage today, but then the conversation, as often is the case with six-year-old boys, went downhill somewhat. The, the next question was, well, did God take flowers? And if he did, well, he'd need fresh water. Uh, but then Joel supposed that, well, he could wee on, you know, on the flowers, because, well, wee is very good for flowers, and as you can imagine, it sort of ran on from there. Noah and the ark. I mean, it's such a wonderful story, isn't it, in the way that it captures the imaginations and rests in the memory of our children. But did it really happen? This is a bit of a stumbling block for, for some people, many people, perhaps many people in this room. Did it really happen? A, a universal flood. The entire world covered in water. Did, did this really happen? 
Such a torrential downpour, such a vast amount of water over a period of 150 days, that the sea level rose until it covered the tops of mountains. Now look, local sea levels can rise a metre or two during a hurricane, but to cover Mount Ararat, the highest mountain in the region, sea levels would have had to risen by 5,137 metres. Now, science sort of tells us that that would require 630 million cubic miles of water. The world's oceans would have had to triple in volume in 150 days and then quickly shrink back down to normal. But, well, then, well, where would the water go? There's nowhere for the water to drain to because the oceans already fill the lowest places. And it's long been known that rain clouds can't possibly hold even a tenth of 1% of the water required. It's a great story, but did these events recorded in Genesis 6 through to 9 really happen? Isaiah, Ezekiel, the author of Hebrews, Peter and Jesus spoke of Noah as a real person and the flood as a real historical event. And so, well, where does this leave us as Christians? Well, briefly here, I think we have two choices, uh, which in the end amount to pretty much the same conclusions. <laughs> Quite by accident, actually. Again, God sort of smiled on my way. Quite by accident um, this week, I had a coffee with a cartographer, if you can believe it. And now he, in turn, um, had a smile on his face when the term cartographer came up. He said he hadn't used a paper map since 2005, and technically, because he was one of those technical sort of guys, uh, cartographers don't exist anymore because the entire world has been mapped. But not in Moses' day. Not by a long shot. As far as Mesopotamian geography was concerned, well, the known world in those days was far, far smaller. And so that's one choice open to us as Christians. A flood of the then-known world. Geographically limited, but still anthropologically universal, because people had not yet spread beyond that region. And geologists and oceanographers have subsequently identified a number of different occasions of massive flooding in the ancient Near East including the flood that um, made, effectively, the Mediterranean Sea and also the Black Sea. But the second choice for Christians, and I think I, I lean towards this, but I'm not sure we can know, the second choice for Christians is simply to recognise that while God usually chooses to work within the scientific order that he has placed in creation, the God of the universe hasn't made himself a prisoner to the machine of the universe. He can act into it. We believe in a God, after all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, scripture tells us that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He spoke creation into being out of nothing. Uh, his Son is right now sustaining all things, the Bible tells us, holding all things into being by His powerful Word. And that means that if Jesus were to stop even for an instant Stop doing that even for an instant. All that we see, touch, taste and smell 
even our very own beings, would simply cease to be. Everything, as we know, would instantly fall out of existence. And so surely a God like this, even if it's not his usual way of operating, is capable of performing miracles, especially when he wants to draw our attention to something very important, like the reality of universal judgment. And so whether you see in the passage in front of you a localised flood of the then-known world uh, in which every living thing was wiped out, or whether you see in the passage in front of you a universal flood across the entire world in which every living thing was wiped out, don't miss the emphasis of the text. Every living thing was wiped out, except one family. This text is about the reality of universal judgment. See there, Genesis 7:23. every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. The cataclysmic destruction of every living thing, people, animals, livestock, the birds of the air, all drowned. De-creation. Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Genesis 3, the fall of man. Genesis 4, the fall of family. Genesis 6, the fall of civilization. The poison of sin spreads until God looks. It's not very good anymore. All that God sees is utter depravity. And in some of the strongest words in the Bible, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so, cataclysmic destruction. De-creation. The world washed utterly clean. And yet somehow, some of the most disturbing, deeply sobering pictures of the depravity of humankind and the reality of universal judgment have become some of our most popular children's stories. Now, aside from baby Jesus in the manger, perhaps, uh, Noah and his ark is probably our most uh, beloved children's story. And, you know, there's some, there's some wonderful things about this. But it's also a, a tragedy. I mean, there we have boats and animals two by two and a floating zoo and doves and rainbows. What more could you want? Not a bloated body in sight. We've so Disneyified, we've so completely sanitized the story of Noah and the Ark that we almost miss the point entirely. Which I think is just like us um, in the way as humans. And, and by the way, perhaps this isn't true of you, uh, but it's certainly true of me and I think of many of us, this is just like us in the way we tend to minimise sin and try and not think about judgement at all. Not a floating zoo, doves and rainbows. The reality of universal judgement. This great flood was God's original universal judgement upon the sin of humankind. 
that issues a warning loud and clear across the millennia about the judgment that is to come when Jesus returns. And it came about by the universal problem of sin that is so devastatingly captured again there in Genesis 6, 5. Look at it again. Look at the total depravity. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And you see in that verse how quickly God moves to the human heart. I think it's typical for us in our day to think that problems are outside of us and that our solutions are inside us, that all that's wrong in our lives happens out there and that all we need by way of resources to fix those problems is in here. Better education leads to less radicalization, leads to less Christ churches. We tend to think that all the world's problems are external and that we can look inward to fix them. But the Bible says completely the opposite. In Noah's day, God saw the wickedness that filled the earth and immediately he traced the evil to its origin, its source in the human heart. And what we have here in Genesis 6-5 is the beginnings of the Christian doctrine of total depravity. And so I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to make a very provocative statement. I expect you're not going to like it. I, I certainly don't like it. Here's the statement. All humankind was and is totally depraved. As I said before, I'm sure you don't like the sound of that. I don't like the sound of that. It's the kind of statement that we immediately push back up against. Surely we say there are some people who are good and that, well, all people must have some good in them. But over the last few weeks, we've seen this process begin with uh, Adam and Eve in chapter 3 and, uh, and spread through their family with Cain, uh, the liar and murderer in chapter 4. And, and, and now in chapter 6, we see the poison of sin spread to all people without exception. We see it in their actions and in their hearts. Every apple is rotten and rotten to the core. Ah, but you say... Surely this is describing a particularly bad world before the flood. Uh, after all, you know, well, God destroys it, and after the flood it isn't so bad, is it? But if we turn to chapter 8, verse 21 in our Bibles, at the end of the flood account, where God is making his promise to Noah, uh, which we'll look at next week, in that verse, chapter 8, 21, after the flood, God says these words. He says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. That's after the flood. The poison has remained in the human race. The world after the flood and the world today is the same as the world before the flood in this respect the judgment of God hangs over us as well. Because he cares, because he's righteous, he must act. In preparing for this sermon, I heard a preacher refer to an article uh, in the newspaper 
about a real estate, a real estate agent in the 1950s who must have finally snapped and he started telling the unvarnished truth about properties that he was listing. And a bit of a word of warning here, this is in the language of the 1950s and our sensibilities have rightfully moved on. Um, but either way, in the 1950s, he started putting ads in the paper writing things like this. Rear bedroom, only suitable for dwarves. Glum attic for midgets, which of course is quite offensive and rightly so in our times. But this uh, description, this one I think, will still make us smile. He wrote of one house, he said this, he published it in the paper, he said, don't be misled by the exterior, it's worse inside. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a, a wry parable for human beings, isn't it? See, whatever we look like on the outside, don't be misled by the exterior, we're worse inside. And it's a relief to us, isn't it, that our thoughts and imaginations are hidden from one another. But God sees them. And what he sees in, in us, um, he, he, he sees that we, well, it's not quite that we're devoid of truth or goodness. No, not at all. There is truth and goodness in us, for sure. But God sees rightly that our every faculty, every part of our human personhood, every, every facet of us is in some degree or another spoiled and touched by evil. Our thinking is spoiled. Our words are never absolutely pure. Our actions are never unmixedly good. It helps perhaps imagine a glass of water and pouring into that glass of water a couple of drops of deadly poison. Now, that glass of water is not as poisonous as it could be. Not as poisonous if, say, it were concentrated cyanide or something like that. But no part of that glass of water is free from poison. That's what total depravity means. It means that there's no part, no faculty, no facet of the human person untouched by sin and therefore clean in God's sight. All of humankind was and is totally depraved. Romans 1 to 3 makes an extended treatment of this, concluding that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are utterly unable to save ourselves and entirely deserving of the coming judgment of God for our sins. God grieves in our day in the same way that he grieved in Noah's day. Universal judgment is real. God has done it once, and he will do it again, which makes our prospects, as in the day of Noah, pretty grim. But the good news for us is that God has sent another carpenter, Jesus. That carpenter didn't build an ark, he built a cross, and he nailed himself to it. Our lifeboat is Jesus. He's the only way for us to escape the coming judgment of God. He's the only way to save your family. Peter tells us that God waited patiently in the days of Noah while he built the ark. And even now, God waits patiently while Jesus builds his church. 
But one day soon God will judge the earth again, not by water this time, but by fire, 2 Peter 3. And so the most urgent question that the passage in, in front of us places before us is, are you on the boat? Before God firmly shuts that door, are you on the boat? How do you get on that boat? <laughs> do you notice how Noah got on that boat, how Noah was saved? He was saved through grace. See there in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, uh, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And in the Hebrew, uh, the word for favour is the same word uh, for grace, uh, which in turn means unmerited favour. Noah was saved by grace through faith. And his faith, the realness of it, the genuineness of it, was proven and demonstrated by Noah's obedience. Did you catch that right through this passage? Genesis 6.22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Genesis 7.5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. It's there again in 7.9. Animals, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. Oops, there it goes. (laughs) Genesis 6. Uh, 7, 16, same thing again, the animals are going in, male and female, of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. And also, did you notice that in this entire narrative, Noah doesn't say a single word? He doesn't utter a single word, because when it comes to salvation, God is the actor. As you read through um, the story, Genesis sort of 6, well into chapter 8, uh, you'll see that it's God who saw the earth as corrupt. God who determined to make an end to all flesh. God who commanded Noah to make an ark. It's God who commanded Noah to go into the ark. It's God who brought the animals to the ark. Noah didn't go and get them. It's God who promised to send rain. It's God who closed the hatch. It's God who remembered Noah. It's God who made the wind blow over the earth. And it's God who told Noah to go out of the ark. It's God who said three times, never again. It's God who who blessed Noah. It's God who sent the rainbow in the sky as a symbol of his promise. You see, when it comes to salvation, it's all God. God is the main actor in this passage in front of us. God saves Noah. Noah doesn't save Noah. But Noah does demonstrate his faith through his obedience. And so, that last part is where we're going to turn uh, today for our lesson for work and life. That's going to be our focus. Noah's faith demonstrated through his obedience. And perhaps the best place to start, I think, and you're going to need your imagination a little bit here, is the scale of that boat. That's a bit hard with the cubits and all of that, but the boat was 140 metres long. It was as big as one and a half football fields which, by the way, is significantly bigger than the largest wooden boat um, that we know of that's ever been uh, built in history. So as you can imagine, the the scale of this boat, um, there would have been enough work for Noah and his sons for the better part of a century, Uh, remembering, of course, that there were no trucks, uh, there were no chainsaws, no cranes. Uh, In 1 Peter 3.20, it says that God waited patiently for the ark to be built which I think it 
implies that the whole construction process took some time. Now, of course, we don't know how long. Perhaps Noah employed workers. It happened quicker. But I think it would have taken a fair amount of time, likely decades. And then in 2 Peter 2.5, we read that Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. And I guess if we put that together with what we know of the culture of his day, we can imagine what it was like to be Noah. We can't know with certainty, but I think we can imagine the scorn. I think we can imagine the ridicule. I think we can imagine the mocking abuse, the threats to his family that would have poured out on Noah uh, and his family as they spent very likely decades, every moment of their time and all of their family's resources, building a huge wooden boat, very likely in the middle of some arid place. The lesson for work and life, stand against the crowd. Jesus' lesson from Genesis 6 to 9, God's done it once, he's going to do it again. Prove the genuineness of your faith by standing against the crowd. Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus' words, enter through the narrow gate, for wide and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Stand against the crowd. John 10, 9, similar. Jesus speaking, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Or Luke 13. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Stand against the crowd. But perhaps most famously, uh, Matthew 24, it's a bit longer this passage, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, for in, this is against Jesus, uh, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. So be ready and demonstrate the genuineness of your faith and make a difference to the world around you. Save your family by standing against the crowd. So to conclude, here's three brief ways from our passage that I think we can begin to get a picture of what it looks like to stand against the crowd. Firstly, I, I was struck as I prepared this text by how God grieves over sin. In those first four verses, uh, we have this sense in the Hebrew of, of God grieving uh, before He acts. And we get a sense um, there also in those first four verses of the depravity of the world before the flood. And look, there's some of the most tricky verses actually to interpret in the, in, in, in the book of Genesis, uh, verses 1 to 4. But however you interpret them, in them we find that there's three sort of ways you can look at it, and each of them have this sort of combined picture of universal depravity. Uh, it's a depravity characterized by utter corruption in the sense of, of rottenness, but also characterized by systematic violence with demonic influences. Sin's effects running rampant and being celebrated and indulged in by all. 
When God looks down on his world, he grieves. So one way I think that we can stand against the crowd is to grieve the sin we see in the world around us as well. I wonder, do you grieve the sin in our world? Because thinking about it this week, I'm not sure that I really do. There was a beautiful moment, um, again, God bringing lots of things together for me. Um, there was a beautiful moment in staff meeting last week when Bishop Ray Smith, he just began to list the evil um, that has risen up in our culture over his 50 years in ministry. Now, Ray would be you know, embarrassed for me even sharing this, but we got quite worked up about it, upset even. Now, these aren't Ray's exact words, but when we think of the corruption in politics, when we think of our sexual ethics, when we think of the celebration of violence and even sexualized violence that fill the world's computer games and streaming services, when we think of the incidences of domestic and family violence in a country even like Australia, when we think of elder abuse, let alone ministers and pastors and cardinals behind bars for child sex offences. Ray grieves over these things. And in this, he has the heart of God. So take a stand against the world when it comes to things like violence and sex, those things in, in those first four verses of Genesis that God grieved over. Don't inadvertently celebrate them. Grieve over them. And this means, amongst other things, taking a close look at your Netflix account. What is recommended for you? Does God grieve at what entertains you? The violence that I often enjoy in my Netflix viewing has to change. At work, in your areas of influence, what can you do to raise awareness of things like domestic and family violence, for example? Or in the pub after work, or in your professional relationships, in your next board meeting, or at that next critical juncture on your career track? How in that moment can you grieve the sin that you see in the world around you and take a stand against the crowd for what you believe in and know is right? Well, secondly, Peter, in, uh, in one of his letters, describes Moses, as we've mentioned, as a preacher of righteousness. But this preacher of righteousness, in our passage, does not speak. Because so often our actions speak louder than our words. Our actions can preach righteousness, or they can undo us altogether in our hypocrisy. When you think about it, so many more people observe us than we have a chance to meaningfully interact with and come to know, let alone opportunities to share the gospel with. So another way you can stand against the crowd is to consider, are your actions preaching righteousness? Are you known as a person of unquestionable integrity at work? Are you known as someone amongst your friends who never speaks an unkind word against another? Are you known as someone who is utterly truthful? Are you known as selfless? Are you willing to take the fall for someone else, to take the blame for a colleague over something you didn't do, because that's what Jesus did for you? Are you generous? 
Are you joyful in all circumstances, even when uh, the going is obviously and understandably really tough? Uh, Take a stand for Jesus. Stand against the crowd by preaching righteousness uh, through your actions at work and in life. And finally, uh, we can take a stand by building our ark. You have to hear me out on this one. Uh, In light of the judgment to come, Noah builds his ark. And by this I mean that Noah is entirely focused on his, on salvation, his own salvation, but also the salvation of his family. And as a preacher of righteousness, I take it, no doubt, also on the salvation of anyone who will listen to him or witness him. But look, this doesn't mean you have to quit your job and become a missionary, as good as that is. Because when you think about it, And again, we can't know for sure, but where on earth did Noah get all the money he needed to build this monstrous boat? I mean, we can't know for sure, but I expect, just like you and I, he needed to work for it. Uh, Perhaps as a carpenter by day and as an ark builder by night. But you know, his overriding passion, his spare time, his finances, his thought life, his goals and his passions were all directed towards unseen future events in obedience to the Word of God. So I wonder, can the same be said of you and I? To what degree does the second coming of Jesus fill your present? And you know, I think it's in this that Moses most powerfully stood against the crowd. So in conclusion, the flood really happened. Universal judgment is real. God has done it once and he's going to do it again. And on that day, every single one of us will have to give an account. Only our sinful hearts betray us, which means that the only one who can speak for us on that day is Jesus. So take a stand for him. Stand against the crowd for him. Grieve with him. Act for him, and most importantly, build your life around salvation only found in him. Do it for your family, do it for your friends. May their future fill your presence, and do it all out of love and obedience for our Lord Jesus. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, thank you that one day soon you will wash our world clean again in order to bring about a new creation free of sin. Thank you that through Jesus, our lifeboat, we can be a part of this new creation through nothing that we have done or ever could have done, simply by acknowledging the state of our hearts before you, repenting of our sin and putting our trust and faith in Jesus' name. We pray this morning for anyone in this room who is yet to enter into his salvation. May they do so this morning before it's too late. May those of us inside have the courage and obedience to take a stand for Jesus, to build our lives around his salvation for our family and for our friends and to your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these words. Amen.